or supplements you can essentially like put it out in the world and then like if it causes problems recall it but if it doesn't like it's just out there and like that's insane to me All right, and welcome everybody to episode seven of the second season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thank you so much for stopping by. Today, we're going to talk all about food and nutraceuticals and essentially non-pharmacologic ways to help lower your cholesterol. So let's dive in. Specifically, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about medical nutrition and nutraceuticals for lipid management, specifically looking at more medical therapy for high LDL and triglycerides, or kind of a mixed picture as well, and then nutraceuticals for lipid management. So starting off here, like I said, the first things first is that a little goes a long way. So, you know, if you lower the LDL by 39 milligrams per deciliter, it's associated with about a 23% relative risk reduction in major vascular events. So most people, you think about 39, that's not an enormous reduction, right? It's it's sizable for sure, but it's not enormous, but it can have a 23% relative risk decrease in major events. Events. So that's really important. And we're going to talk about the six main concepts we talk about here for medical nutrition to, to lower this specific high LDL, non HDL. So when we talked, you know, previous podcasts, we have that high LDL or non HDL. Obviously, that's not ideal. We want to lower that. Here are some ways we can do that in a non pharmacologic way. All right, the first point we're going to talk about here is reducing our saturated fat intake. So remember, saturated fats, if you go back to our earlier podcast, the chemical structure of that, they have no double bonds chemically, whereas monounsaturated have one double bond and polyunsaturated have multiple double bonds. So like I said, kind of nerd alert there, but that's what we're looking at structurally. The way I think about it, saturated fats are you know, commonly the things you see that are hard at room temperature, things like butter, coconut oil, lard, and then also they're commonly found in red meat. So that's what we think of saturated fat, a lot of it's animal-based products. And the overall recommendations though is to be under 7% of your total daily calories in saturated fats. And in fact, the ACCHA recommend kind of five to 6% of daily calories. So if you add up all of your calories, you should have less than 7% of those coming from saturated fats. And this is actually a big difference. The average American eats about 11% of their calories from saturated fat. So that's a big decrease, right? We want to decrease at least 4%. And it has to be a conscious effort to make that happen, right? You're not just going to magically have that happen. So the question is, well, okay, if we're not eating saturated fat, though, well, what are we eating? Well, we should replace those with monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats or whole grains. And if you do that, you may be able to reduce your LDL by about six to nine milligrams per deciliter. And you might be saying like, Jordan, that's nothing. What do I care about that? Well, once again, all these things we're talking about today, these are kind of additive things. You know, we can add it to a medication, we can add it to lifestyle, we can add them to each other. And, you know, if we add up multiple things together, it might be as strong as actually starting medication. And so just something to keep aware of, but the number one thing we're going to talk about here, that's probably the lowest hanging fruit is reducing our saturated fat intake. All right, number two is increasing intake of plant sterols or sterols or phytosterols, multiple words for it, but essentially they're all the same thing. These are plant structures that are similar to cholesterol, but they're coming from plant sources. So they kind of have a very similar chemical structure to cholesterol, but they're not. You know, what happens is these lead to competition of absorption of normal cholesterol, and also it limits the intake of normal cholesterol. Going back, getting a little nerdy, essentially it's inhibiting cholesterol absorption via formation of mixed micelles. So micelles are kind of the things that everything gets mixed together in, you know, the gut, and when it gets absorbed in these micelles, cells and that's brought in by the NPC 101, which we've talked about in you know, that receptor. We've talked about ad nauseum and then they kind of get in there and they're like, ah, we tricked you. And then they end up getting sent back out by the ABC G5 and G8 proteins. But essentially what they do is they kind of come in there and like sneak in and they're like a body double for cholesterol. They go in there and they get absorbed and then your body's like, what the heck, man? I don't want you here. And they ship them back out, but it inhibits the actual, you know, absorption of natural cholesterol that we would consume normally. So it's kind of replacing that kind of tricking it there. And the goal here is if you hit about 1.5 to two grams per day, can lower your LDL by about 6 to 15%. So that's pretty significant. However, the only problem is the average intake is about 200 to 500 milligrams per day. So you're probably going to need a supplement. 
You can get these in like vegetables, fruits, wheat germ, whole grains, beans, sunflowers, vegetable oils, things like that. But once again, it's kind of hard unless you supplement to get that much to get about two grams a day. So they do recommend if you do supplement though, you should take it with food and they suggest taking it with meals because that's when like you're taking dietary cholesterol in, right? And it's more likely to kind of block that cholesterol if you, if you take it while you're eating there. And one thing to mention, if we are blocking the uptake of cholesterol, it may decrease our ability to absorb certain carotenoids or fat soluble vitamins like the ADEK vitamins. And so you might need to take additional fruits, veggies or something like that. But just uh, something you can think about, you know, in terms of trying to increase those phytosterols might be helpful. All right, point number three, we're gonna talk about increasing our viscous fiber intake. So if you remember, fiber is a type of carbohydrate, but our body can absorb it. And specifically here, viscous fiber is a soluble fiber that's found in plant foods. And once again, doesn't get absorbed and it kind of can bind cholesterol in the gut to limit absorption of that. A couple of the names you might see are things like beta-glucan, psyllium, guar gum, pectin. Those are all names for different types of viscous fiber. And overall, the AHA recommends 31 grams of fiber per day, and about 5 to 10 of these should be coming from viscous fiber. So if you see here, the goal is about 5 to 10 grams per day. And these are more readily available in foods. So what we find, we find them in fruits, veggies, nuts, legumes, whole grains, beans, oats, broccoli, soup, tears, all this fun stuff. But you might be asking, like, well, what does that mean? Well, here's an example. About one half cup of cooked or one cup of raw broccoli, you know, maybe the same equivalent of cauliflower, carrots, Brussels sprouts, all those things would get you about one to three grams of viscous fiber. So really, if you have a couple of those, you know, servings, you're having, you know, five, six servings of vegetables a day, you're probably going to hit it. And that's generally a recommendation. So AHA recommends about four fruits and five veggies per day. So if you do that, you're probably going to have a better chance of being close to this, you know, viscous fiber intake. And so it's just something to think about. And if we do hit this fiber intake, we may decrease LDL by another five to 10%. So like I said, if we're looking back on it and going boom, 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 adding up here, we're looking around 20% of our, our total decrease in LDL just by making some dietary changes, which is pretty cool. All right, next, number four, we're gonna talk about reduced dietary cholesterol intake. This is hotly debated um, in terms of how much of a factor that it does play, but it does seem to play a factor. The overall goal for trying to reduce our LDL should be less than 200 milligrams per day. You know, the general consensus is that about for each 100 milligram that you increase in dietary cholesterol, you'll have about a 4.58 milligram per deciliter increase in LDL. So like I said, if you're eating enormous amounts of cholesterol, that is a really low hanging fruit to kind of decrease our LDL. The real reason we kind of see this connection, though, the question is, is it cholesterol that's doing it necessarily? Well, maybe not. We're not entirely sure because a lot of times cholesterol comes with foods that are high in saturated fat, right? So if we have lots of cholesterol, we're probably consuming lots of saturated fat, and that seems to also increase our LDL. So it's kind of like, you know, what came first, chicken or the egg? We're not necessarily sure, but we tend to see that high cholesterol foods do lead to the increase in LDL. And so for this, you're going to have to look at food labels, right? But usually these are found in animal products, red meat, dairy, eggs, those type of things. But goal kind of keeping it under 200 milligrams per deciliter. All right, this is not necessarily a medical intervention, but it does involve food. And this is weight loss for number five. Like I said, weight loss of about three to 5% of body weight in those with overweight or obesity will have LDL lowering effects. So with more as you lose weight, right? So if you lose more weight, you'll probably have greater effects. So an example would be if you're a 185 pound person, all you need to lose is about 5.5 pounds to start seeing some benefits in terms of cardiovascular risk and lipid numbers. So like I said, We've kind of seen that it seems most helpful in those who have overweight or obesity. And if you are a normal body weight, probably not as helpful. But once again, weight loss is like always a no-brainer. There's pretty much like no marker, no metabolic marker, like no, nothing that's going to get worse when you lose weight pretty much. So that's always going to be like the first line is like, hey, if we're at a, a weight that's above where we want to be, losing weight will help us with pretty much all of our risk markers. All right, and finally, number six, we're going to talk about referral to medical nutrition therapy. So this is probably most likely a registered dietitian. And they found that referral to a dietitian can actually lower LDL potentially by 7 to 14%. They found that their counseling is more effective than physicians, which, I mean, as a physician, I say that's 
100% accurate. I mean, they, this is what they do. This is their specialty. Um, like they are, go to school for just that. And so using them is super appropriate and we really should lean on them and do that. Um, but like I said, they have all this expertise and we should be leaning on them. So like I say, and also I only have 20 minutes with the patient. So it's really hard to do, take care of five different things and talk about medical nutrition. Whereas like I said, this is an awesome thing where refer to our colleagues and who are dietitians and may have a big impact on LDL. All right, and this is kind of a summarized table of what's going on in terms of what we just talked about, meaning decreasing our saturated fat, increasing our viscous fiber, increasing plant sterols, decreasing cholesterol, decrease our weight and referral to a dietitian, all those things. The biggest bang for a buck is probably replacing saturated fats with monounsaturated fats or PUFAs um, or adding in plant sterols. Like I said, if you do, if you take away any of the two things here, say, hey, let's eat some more fiber, right? So eat some more fiber, maybe supplement with some plant sterols and then substitute out saturated fat for monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fat. That's kind of probably gonna be our biggest bang for the buck right there. All right, next we're moving on to medical nutrition for hypertriglyceridemia. So when we have elevated triglycerides, and this can be very effective, you know, changing up your diet can decrease that number by 25 to 50%. So that's definitely significant. And once again, there's six main concepts we're gonna talk about here. Number one is reducing alcohol intake. At the end of the day, like the more and more studies that are coming out, there's like no real beneficial dose to alcohol. You know, we used to think like resveratrol and red wine and who knows, but at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like when you're drinking alcohol, you're necessarily doing anything beneficial. That might change by the time this comes out and things might be going there, but the overall like positives, benefits of it, you really have to weigh those because like from a health perspective, I'm not sure how beneficial it is, but especially in the setting of high triglycerides, it's definitely not beneficial. You know, when we have, when we consume alcohol, you know, triglycerides are increased by about 0.2 milligrams per deciliter per gram of alcohol consumed per day. So let's say an average drinks like 14 grams, right? So essentially if you're doing that every day, you're about 2.8 milligrams per deciliter per day, you could have an increase every triglycerides, which might not seem like a lot, but if you're adding up over time, you're having lots of drinks throughout the week, that may lead to an increase on triglycerides. And specifically with alcohol intake, they kind of give you some, some area to say, hey, this is what we need to look for here. If your triglycerides are about 150 to 500, they say you should reduce your alcohol intake to moderate or low. Um, once again, they're not recommending you should ever have it high, but they're saying if it is high, they really recommend going to moderate or low. Whereas if your triglycerides are over 500, they say you should eliminate alcohol entirely. And so once again, low-hanging fruit, if your triglycerides are high and you consume a decent amount of alcohol, something to consider in terms of like what's a quote unquote normal alcohol intake. It'd be no more than two drinks per day or 14 in a week for a male or one drink a day or seven drinks in a week for a female. And once again, I think my goal for most people is to go significantly lower than that. I uh, just don't think there's a huge health benefit from that, but those are the general recommendations. So if you're drinking above that, once again, really low hanging fruit to kind of help improve those triglycerides. All right, moving on to number two, this is reducing intake of refined grains and added sugars. And this is just a general good piece of advice for anybody who's having a health-promoting diet. We do not want to eat a bunch of refined grains and added sugars. But the overall goal should be decreasing our refined carbs by to less than 50% of our total carbs. So regardless of what your carbs are, right, you know, it depends on where you're at. Goals can be different, but we would generally want to have less than 50% coming from refined carbs. And what are refined carbs? Well, essentially things like white bread, pasta, rice, chips, crackers, cereal, those things. And they recommend replacing, you know, any of those with whole grains. Obviously, if you can't, then on top of that, if you're having lots and lots of carbohydrates that are processed, you can replace them with things like lean meats or unsaturated fats, which would be a good switch out for decreasing triglycerides. On top of that, we should also be avoiding lots and lots of sugar as well. We can see that that can lead to elevated triglycerides. And the average American consumes about 13% of their daily kilocals from added sugars. And so that's just something to think. When you're looking at our labels and look at the, uh, what you're eating, see how much added sugar is there. Because that's, once again, a really, really low-hanging fruit to say, hey, I'm going to eat things that have you know no added sugar or a lot less added sugar. And it can help improve those triglyceride numbers. All right, number three, we're going to talk about increasing consumption of omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA and DHA. You know, the baseline average American takes about 100 milligrams per day of these omega-3 fatty acids with recommended intakes of like 250 per day. And so we're 
low to start with. And then if we want to see actual like benefits and outcomes, the outcome data has been shown between anywhere from like one to four grams, which with more of the data being towards like upper ends, so like three, four grams a day, which is a lot, you know, it's going to mean a pretty substantial supplementation. They kind of say if your triglycerides are on a different sliding scale, they'll kind of give you what you should do. Meaning if your triglycerides are at 150 to 199, they recommend, oh, about a gram a day. Whereas if it works all the way up to, if your triglycerides over a thousand, they say three to four grams per day, um, which is what we're looking for. And so what we may, you may lower triglycerides as much as like, you know, anywhere from three to 45% with fish oil, which is pretty sweet and common ways to get fish oil other than a supplement is, you know, eating things like salmon, mackerel, tuna, trout, sardines, you know, coming from our marine sources. Um, and so just thinking about that here, increasing our omega threes might help decrease our triglycerides as well. All right, point number four, once again, not necessarily nutritional intervention, but super important, increasing your exercise. You know, aerobic exercise is studied specifically, but it can lead to a modest reduction. You know, the goals here are to increase aerobic exercise with a goal of, you know, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity, pretty consistent with the general physical activity guidelines. And they may lower triglycerides by about 5%. Like I said, exercise is not going to be the thing we talk about. Like the, this is the most important thing for lowering LDL or for lowering triglycerides. It has just so many good benefits for other things as well that we of course want you to do it, but it's not going to be like, Hey, I'll just work out an insane amount and lower everything. Um, you know, cause I, weight loss might come with exercise, exercise might lead to other improvement in metabolic markers, but it's not going to be huge, huge numbers, but we always want you to do that as well. And going hand in hand with that, we just talked about exercise. We're going to talk about weight loss too. Obviously, you know, if we have overweight or obesity, it is beneficial. Even, you know, weight loss of five to 10%, if you're overweight or obese can lead to, you know, even greater than 20% reductions in triglycerides. So pretty big bang for your buck as well. Like I said, 5% can be, you know, not enormous for a lot of people. That seems like manageable and we can do that, but to have something, you know, about 15 to 20% decrease in triglycerides might be worth it. All right, and number six, referral to the dietitian, just like the last time, super important. This is all they do. This is their specialty. They are made for this. Like, we really need to utilize them, especially if triglycerides are through the roof. Like, if it's over a thousand, like, man, we need to get them to a dietitian. They're probably going to put them on a low fat diet. Um, but like I said, they'd be doing a disservice to our patients if we're not using all the resources we have. So, once again, if we have really, really elevated triglycerides, it might be worth referring to our dietitians. All right, so next we're going to talk about dietary changes for mixed dyslipidemia. And when I mean mixed, I mean elevated LDL with a low HDL. So, we have both things going on. For the LDL perspective, obviously we talked about that, but in general, even for the HDL, the recommendations are going to be the same as if they were for lowering our LDL. You know, specifically HDL, why we care about it, a low HDL is associated with increase in triglyceride-rich lipoproteins and triglycerides. There's no real goal for HDL. We have like general goals, but we want to raise it up to, you know, they're 40 or 50, depending on if you're male or female. Once again, there's no target we need to get to. There's no real outcomes based on HDL. And so, but when we see it really, really low, it's usually an indicator that uh, maybe there's some insulin resistance going on or something, but it just tells me someone's usually not metabolically healthy. And so physical activity is super, super important to raise this. And that's like the number one thing I'll say, if your HDL is low, we need to get you physically active. And then obviously while we're doing that, we're working on the other things to lower our LDL, which should also help the whole entire metabolic picture. All right, and I wouldn't be doing a good job here if I didn't talk about weight management and cardiovascular risk when we're talking about medical nutrition. So for weight management, the general recommendations that we should adjust energy intake to avoid weight gain, or if we have obesity or overweight to promote weight loss. So if you're at a healthy body weight, we don't want to, we don't want to gain weight. But if you have overweight or obesity, we want to reduce our calories. The goal is about, you know, if you think about 500 kilocalories a day, if you limit that, that's going to be a pound in a week. There's no specific best diet for weight loss. So pick one that works with patients, goals and preferences. You know, you ask one person what diet works for them. That means that's one person that has a diet that works for them. So find the one that works for your patient. Even weight loss as low as three to 5% can improve clinically meaningful improvements. And so once again, it's not a huge we're not asking someone to lose an enormous amount of weight. That's ideal. Like, don't get me wrong. If we can lose a lot of weight in a healthy way, that's going to help all of our markers. But even a little bit goes a long way. 
And on top of that, we have to try to hit our physical activity guidelines, right? So we adjust the energy intake, then we have to be physically active. So at least 150 minutes a week of aerobic activity. Also on top of that, we want resistance training as well. And then on top of that, if you do are concerned for weight loss or trying to prevent weight regain, they actually recommend increasing that activity from 150 to about 200, 300 plus minutes, depending on anything like that. So they found that those who have a higher level of physical activity tend to have better outcomes in terms of keeping weight off. And so that's why it's such a priority. In terms of, you know, the first two things we talked about, adjust energy intake, be physically active. Then three is they actually found people who track food do better. A lot of times using technology seems to be helpful. So using a food log or an app to track intake can be helpful. Also kind of helps keep you on track with your goals. Some studies have shown that using an app may lead to greater weight loss and electronic interventions that have tracking goals essentially with them are associated with a greater weight loss. And so it kind of makes sense, right? It's intuitive. If you're like tracking and understanding what you're eating, you're more likely to kind of stay on track. It's just very intuitive, but that's, you know, I think an underrated thing that most people don't necessarily think about It's it takes a lot of concerted effort and it is a pain in the butt to do, but it can be super, super worth it. And finally here, last point is use our resources, right? Like we've talked about before, talking with our dietitians, or in this time talking about behavioral weight loss interventions, talking about behavioral therapists, referral to a comprehensive lifestyle program may be really helpful, you know, because there's a lot going on. A lot of times trying to lose weight is a huge lifestyle shift. And so we have experts to kind of help guide in multiple areas. And if you do have an intensive lifestyle program, you can lose about five to 10% of body weight in this process. And like we know, getting that much does have an improvement in pretty much everything in our system in terms of markers and, you know, cholesterol and all that. So Once again, the takeaway here is that we need to adjust energy intake, be physically active, track our food, and then use the resources that are available to us. All right, and I have to talk about prevention of cardiovascular disease, right? We've talked about dyslipidemia when we have it. How do we treat it? Well, how do we actually prevent it? Well, the number one thing is having a health-promoting diet, right? And you might ask me, well, what does that mean? Well, that's honestly going to be different for everyone else. The reason I say that is because if you've seen people on the internet or talk to someone who's done awesome on a low-fat diet and other people have done awesome on a keto diet or a low-carb diet or other people have done the zone diet or you name it, with a diet, someone's had success on it. And that just goes to show like when you step back, what do these things have in common? And a lot of times they have unprocessed foods. That's kind of the big deal. A lot of times they have things like lots of fruits, vegetables, nuts, whole grains, lean animal protein, fish, seafood. These are the commonalities in these diets. And when they do that, they also limit things like trans fats, sodium, processed meats, added sugars, sugar-sweetened beverages. Like I said, that's kind of the big thing that we're going for here is finding something that a patient can do, right? A patient's preference, right? That's the biggest thing. Take the patient's preference into account. If they absolutely refuse to eat animal products, then telling them to eat this specific way that has lots of animal products is not going to work, right? So find something that works for them that they can get on board with, right? That's going to be the biggest thing. And then kind of drive the ship from there. All right, so we're going to wrap up this section talking about food in terms of medical nutrition for LDL and triglycerides. The key takeaways here are that if we're going to have, we want to lower our LDL, we want to decrease saturated fat intake, increase our plant sterols and fiber intake, and then decrease dietary cholesterol. And once again, if we want to lower our triglycerides, trying to avoid alcohol, decrease added sugars and refined grains, and increase our omega-3 fatty acids. So not crazy recommendations, but if you do those things, it's very reasonable to find some awesome improvements in our cholesterol markers. All right, next we're going to talk about nutraceuticals and functional foods, and that sounds really fancy, but nutraceuticals are essentially defined as nutritional products that provide health and medical benefits, and functional foods are foods that are eaten in daily life that have a specific component that standard diet doesn't have. So essentially, you're bolstering your diet with something with a specific goal in mind. So like I said, they sound really fancy, so people can sound really smart, but at the end of the day, it's just, once again, more food or a plant or food-based product or extract that we're going to talk about here. And I do have to mention that a lot of people say, oh, I'd rather, I'd prefer to do this because it's natural. Well, at the end of the day, Natural doesn't necessarily mean it's safe, right? You know, there's lots of natural poisons. There's diseases and death. 
those are both natural as well. And so it's kind of a natural fallacy that like, oh, like because it's natural, it's better. At the end of the day, a lot of times what we do is we find something in nature and purify it and put it into pharmaceutical grade things. And we'll see that in a second, but that's how it goes. So natural doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, but in this instance, for someone who says, hey, I refuse to take a pharmaceutical, we do have some options that we can consider. Okay. And so who are these things for? First and foremost, these are for people with lower risk, right? Because of the uncertainty of like the formulations of the product, actually how good the data is, we're not sure on that, you know, and maybe max of like anywhere from five to 20% reduction in like LDL or biomarkers. They're not great for high risk patients, right? Like if you had a heart attack before and your LDL is through the roof, taking these are not going to be what we recommend at all. We want you to be on a cholesterol lowering medication because the data is really, really good on that for preventing, you know, second event or anything like that. So if you have a very, very high risk, this is not for you. And this is not a replacement for lipid lowering therapy as well. Let me just reiterate that. If you're supposed to be on a statin due to an incredibly high risk, like really, really high risk, this is not going to replace that. That being said, if you're in that low range, you kind of low risk, you're maybe borderline, this might be the person that can consider something like this. All right, first, I have to talk about the risks, right? Anytime you ingest anything, that has a risk. If you drink water, that has a risk. If you drink too much water, I mean, anything you put in your body, there are risks to that. And I want to talk about it because, you know, it's very important. Most people think, oh, I'm taking something that's natural. Like, there's no risk. No, that's absolutely not true. And so you should be aware of that as well. You know, if you took a medication, you would definitely know about the risks. And so you should be knowing about the risks here as well. Specifically talking about like supplements in general, supplement standards are not pharmaceutical grade. So some people might be like, well, that's good. I don't trust pharma. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, there's at least standards there. Whereas in the supplement industry, the standards vary huge percentages of people. You know, there's some people who have awesome manufacturing processes and things are really good. Other people are shady, making things out of their basement and not really, but there's such a huge spectrum on what's allowed that it's hard to know what you're actually getting. And, you know, there's a large percentage of supplements that can have contamination as well. I've done studies showing that um, a lot of them have contamination or they contain things that they shouldn't have in there and aren't what they said the active ingredients are. And so you truly don't know what you're getting or what dose. And that's like the biggest thing is like, oh, you get this pill and it may, you know, in this dose have this dose and this pill has different dosing or a different bottle. And so there's so much variability there that we can't necessarily know like what we're getting. And that, you know, that's what's concerning. Also, there's a lack of standardization, right? So there's multiple manufacturers, you know, no unified standard. There are some, like they're kind of moving that way for some people can have a, a certification, which are good, but doesn't, you know, every supplement doesn't need that. And if you look online, not everyone has that. On top of that, people can also take these because they think it's harmless, and but they can actually interact with their medications they're taking. So you have to remember that if you want a desired result and something's happening, you know, to get that result, then there has to be a physiologic change, right? So therefore, if something physiologically is changing in our body, that could affect other processes in our body, including medications that we take. So like I said, this is a problem that we see a decent bit in the hospital where people are taking things and it might lead to issues, but you have to just think about it. And at the end of the day, I also want to talk about, you know, everyone rags on big pharma and I, I agree like, big pharma has some huge issues. That's for sure. No doubt about that. But everyone kind of like gives, you know, big supplement a pass, right? They say like, Oh, like big pharma is the worst, but like, man, this is a enormous industry. The supplement industry, it's worth billions and billions of dollars, but like somehow a big supplement like gets away scot-free because it's not just necessarily one big company, but essentially, like I said, there's not no real regulations. The price markups are insane. There's a lack of safety measures. Everybody and their brother has a supplement line. Like I said, it's just insane. Like the amount of work it takes to get a supplement is not anywhere close to what it takes to get a pharmaceutical grade medication out there. And so it's just something you have to be aware, right? I'm not ragging. I'm not saying necessarily they're all bad. They're not, but you just have to wear that. To make a supplement necessarily, you don't have to have FDA approval before you release a supplement. That's like a, something a lot of people don't realize is like, you know, the FDA approval process is for medications. It's like, okay, you got to go through all these trials, show that it's safe, and then put it out there. Supplements, you can essentially like put it out in the world. And then like, if it causes problems, recall it. But if it doesn't, like, it's just out there. And like, that's insane to me. And so that's why like supplements, I'm always like, oh, we'll see. Um, like I said, and the reason... 
I, I just want you to caution you that it's not as like benign as it is. You know, at the end of the day, you're probably going to be okay. I mean, let's just be honest. It's probably gonna be okay. But that being said, I would trust a pharmaceutical grade medication over supplement any day of the week because we know they've gone through that purifying process. They have standardization. They know that they've done trials on it. And so like, that's just kind of my, my two cents. If we have two of the exact same things that like, I would take the pharmaceutical grade of it. Cause I know what I'm getting every single time. And it's also helpful for you, right? Cause if you're getting a different dose every time you don't necessarily know what you're getting. So once again, I don't care one or another and big pharma is definitely not a saint, but at least like we know what we're getting with them. Right. And so that's why at the end of the day, there are risks to taking these medications. There are risks to doing anything you do, risks to taking supplements, you name it. But I just want you to be aware of that, that this is not, you know, just, Oh, I can take any Thing and it's not gonna be a problem. Okay, sorry about that. Rant over. First supplement we're talking about is red yeast rice. So red yeast rice, this is you know one of the most common nutraceuticals to talk about. It's essentially a mold that ferments rice. And what this does is inhibits hepatic cholesterol biosynthesis. And actually what it does, this structure is like almost identical to lovastatin. So one of our statin medications. So it inhibits HMG-CoA reductase, the same enzyme that statins work on. So essentially like red yeast rice is like taking a statin. Um, the doses for here, inside of there's a thing called monoclonal K, which is kind of like the active part of it. The dose of that should be about three to 10 milligrams per day. And it can actually decrease LDL in from like 20 to 25%. It may also decrease triglycerides as well. You know, there's been some ones, but whether it's better than a statin or not, and it doesn't look like it is, but it may have some LDL lowering. There's a low reported side effects here, but similar side effects to statins in terms of muscle injuries as well. And so once again, if you're blocking the same pathway as a statin, we'd expect to see statin-like effects. Um, on top of that, this is also metabolized in the liver. So just once again, drug-drug interactions, antifungal medications or some antibiotics that you have with that can interact with this. And once again, please like don't take this anastatin for obvious reasons. They're working in the same mechanism that could lead to you know essentially doubling or amplifying of the symptoms um, or liver injury as well. But red yeast rice, um, decently studied and has some decent numbers on it. All right, and talking about omega-3 fatty acids next, we talked about them before. We're going to talk about them again, though. Since we have EPA and DHA are the two main types, you know, they're fancy words, but if you remember EPA, DHA, that's all we need. And the mechanism how they work, well, essentially they act these things called PPARs, which increase gene expression of these encoding proteins that participate in fatty oxidation. So essentially they inhibit fat incorporation in triglycerides. And so that's how they, you know, they work essentially. What they found is that DHA typically helps lower triglycerides better, whereas the EPA helps lower LDL a little better. And the general... Dosing, once, we, once again, we mentioned before, was like two to four grams. Um, only hard outcome data was seen at four grams of purified EPA. And so like I said, four grams is getting up there, but that's kind of where the outcome data is. And some of the other studies have shown it might decrease your LDL, triglycerides, may increase HDL. And like I said, just something to think about. It seems that omega-3, when they're higher doses, seem to have some beneficial effects on our cardiovascular markers. Berberine's another one here. This is a plant extract. Unclear mechanism. Some people think it inhibits... PCSK9, so kind of working like the PCSK9 inhibitors. They're not necessarily sure, but some other people may say it, it may promote a specific microbiome in the gut that's anti-atherosclerotic. Not entirely sure. Dosing in this would be about 500 to 1500 milligrams, and there's some studies showing it may decrease LDL, triglycerides, and increase your HDL. But the one caveat is this is mostly studied in Asian populations, and there's very little info in this on patients in the West. And most of these studies were seen with something else, like it was berberine and red yeast extract. So it's hard to differentiate. Was it just the berberine or was it the combination of the medication? All right, next we're moving on to soy, right? Everyone's saying soy's the worst. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's not enormous in terms of the effects it has on LDL, but it does seem to have some potential effect. The biggest benefit they seem though is when you're switching out animal proteins for soy-based protein. 
And once again, maybe that's just switching out saturated fats for a different form of something that's not saturated fat, and that's most likely what it is. But it does seem to be beneficial when we're taking out some of that and just replacing it with soy. Um, it does have some mixed results, but may have some cardiovascular benefits. Dosing on this would be about 25 to 100 grams a day, and it may decrease our LDL, you know, our total cholesterol, ApoB, things like that. All right, next we're talking about good old vitamin D, right? So how does vitamin D help lipids? Well, they're not exactly sure. They thought maybe it inhibits HMG reductase, Maybe it decreases a protein that controls cholesterol synthesis somewhere else. Not entirely sure. And they're not actually entirely sure that it decreases like cholesterol, LDL, anything like that. But what they do find is that those with vitamin D deficiency tend to be associated with cardiovascular events. Not necessarily, once again, not necessarily showing a causation, but it, and it shows that people who have normal levels appear to be more protective. So just kind of making sure we have a normal vitamin D level probably is a decent idea. All right, next, moving on to antioxidants, specifically as taxithin and CoQ10. Both of these, the way they think this works is that they inhibit LDL peroxidation. So essentially what they're saying is the LDL can't get oxidized to then cause atherosclerosis. That's the thought behind it. As taxithin, there were some short-term data showing LDL lowering, but RCTs weren't as clear on that, the one RCT that I saw. And so it's kind of up for, up for debate. And then CoQ10, everyone's taking that. It's super important uh, in our body. So it makes sense why people want to have enough of it. But it's involved in lots of stuff like makes ATP, involved in calcium-dependent channels, cell signaling, cell growth, you name it, can do lots of stuff. The one problem, it has variable bioavailability. So when you take it, we're not sure how much it's working. Um, but it does have a super long half-life once you do take it. So we have to consider that. It may lower lipids, but a lot of times these are studies with other products as well. And so this is one of those like kind of mechanism like, oh, this like makes sense intuitively, but don't have a lot of good data that it, that it's actually doing anything. Next, we're going to talk about turmeric or curcumin. Essentially, the curcumin is the active product of turmeric. Um, this is an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and it may inhibit NPC 101 receptor we talked about before in terms of absorbing cholesterol, not sure, but most people think this is a strong antioxidant or anti-inflammatory. Um, the dose here would be one to three grams per day. So like I said, that's going to be more than just sprinkling a little turmeric on. It's going to be probably in a pill. Um, some data has shown the decrease in total cholesterol, LDL, um, which could be beneficial. But the problem is with this, there's variable formulations, right? So like, it's hard to just say, hey, this is the dose that we're taking. I've talked about this before. Like, this is the problem with supplements, right? Like, this supplement has 500 milligrams. This one has 1,000. Like, you don't know what the dose is. And a lot of times the studies, there might be one or two studies, and they use different doses. It's really hard to know, like, what we're getting with, right? So at this time, it's not recommended for this perfect just because we don't have very, you know, a steady formulation. All right, next we're moving on to green tea. I was thinking of the movie Hot Rod when I think of green tea. If you know, you know. But in green tea, we have lots of good components, things like polyphenols, catechins, alkaloids, polysaccharides, all these like health-promoting things that are in there. And the overall consensus is that it generally improves biomarkers. It's not an enormous amount. It may decrease triglycerides, total cholesterol, ApoB, all those things that it may or may not do. Uh, but overall, it's one of those things where it seems to trending in that direction. Uh, doses are like 25 to 100 grams per day. But once again, at the end of the day, this is one of those things like low risk and potential reward. So it's probably okay with doing, although the data is not fantastic on it. Resveratrol, another compound everyone talks about. Everyone loves talking about this with like red wine, right? Like, oh, there's resveratrol. Very small amount in red wine, actually, but it's, it is there. This is, however, generally safe and well-tolerated. Um, it's an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory. It has some cardioprotective effects when it's dosed around 100 milligrams. May decrease triglyceride and total cholesterol. Um, but once again, nothing overwhelming on this either. Then there's some other stuff. Like I said, I'm just kind of grouping these together. Um, Chitosin is one. It's a non-fiber made from shellfish, sea crustaceans, may inhibit cholesterol absorption in the bowel, we're not sure, um, may decrease LDL. Garlic is essentially garlic powder, right? So it's not necessarily just like you're sitting there just putting garlic on stuff. Um, it's not a licensed supplement yet, so it's not 
a slam dunk. The idea is that it may have antioxidant property or antiplatelet action, not necessarily sure. May lower, may lower cholesterol, you know, about 8% um, with a dried powder and then 15% with a non-powder preparation. So that's something to think about and overall may have some improvement markers. Polyphenols that we talked about a little bit before in terms of what they were in um, generally look like they improve markers, may inhibit HMG choline reductase. We're not sure how it works exactly, but it may decrease things like total cholesterol, triglycerides, and LDL. And then probiotics, there's so many variables in this. There's so many strains, so it kind of depends on what strain you are. It may decrease your cholesterol, may not. Unclear mechanism, we're not quite sure on that either. Lots and lots of more data that we need on that. And then the last one is artichoke extract. So once again, not just eating artichokes, but it's an artichoke leaf extract. And may have some lipid-lowering and hepatoprotective effects, meaning good for the liver, um, probably due to its anti-inflammatory properties. And once again, seems to have a trend towards decreasing total cholesterol, LDL, triglyceride, and that's kind of where it goes. All right, let's summarize some things here now. In terms of nutritional therapy for managing our lipids, I think it's pretty slam dunk that if we replace saturated fats with monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, that's probably a good idea. Also probably beneficial to increase our fiber intake, maybe add in some phytosterols if we can fit that in and kind of tolerate that. Those are big things. And obviously weight loss if we need to. Those are like the big things from medical therapy that, you know, pretty good data on that that I feel good and confident recommending. That being said, from a nutraceutical perspective, you might be like, Jordan, that was kind of confusing. I mean, you know what? It kind of was confusing because the data is pretty much everywhere. You know, it's just not as robust. You know, we don't have nearly as many studies. And like I said, the problem with supplements is that there's lots of variability in terms of the dose here was different from this dose here. So it's hard to kind of recommend. You know, people talk about red yeast rice. They talk about fish oils. I think fish oil is really well studied. And I can say, you know, there's some benefits to that. Like once we get onto those higher doses, it can be beneficial. Red yeast rice, you know, I said, it's not as slam dunk. Um, like I said, it's pretty much taking a statin. And so for me, like if it's between red yeast rice and a statin, probably take a statin just because we know what's necessarily going on um, in terms of the pharmaceutical one. But that being said, it can be a replacement for someone's like, I refuse to take a statin. That's okay. Um, but like I said, from another nutraceutical perspective, a lot of these things like mechanism-based like may have improvement in this, may do that. And so like I'm not hanging my hat at any of those. And so like kind of take it out over here like – it's okay to try these things in the patient if you understand the risks and benefits, right? It's okay if you're low risk too, right? If your LDL is, you know, 600 and you had a heart attack already, like this, this you're not the person for this. That's just not the case. But that being said, you know, low risk patient, be okay to try these because some of these things can improve things up to like 20% in terms of a 20% decrease in your LDL. That may be all you need to get you out of a high risk or higher risk, you know, bracket. So once again, super important to understand your risk benefits though, right? You know, there's still a risk for everything you consume and everything you put in your body, even if it's a supplement. So you have to understand that. At the end of the day, the most studied things are going to be like fish oil, red yeast rice, plant sterols, fiber. Those are kind of like the things we can think about in terms of nutraceuticals um, that are supplements there. And then obviously from a nutrition perspective, we talked about those things. So once again, I do want to say this is not a replacement for lipid lowering medication if you qualify for that or if you need to. Like I said, if you're borderline, this may be you know a way, a way you can kind of push that off and, and do that. But if you're a very high risk, not a replacement for that. So like I said, I hope this was helpful for you. I know a lot of people like talking about how can we improve our cholesterol without taking medications. And I hope you learned something or at least have some ideas that you can research more and kind of figure out what works best for you. And once again, I always recommend talking about this with someone, whether it's a registered dietitian or your physician. Um, but you know, this is hopefully a tool for you to kind of use and, and, and do some more research and figure out what might be the right fit for you. So if you did find this helpful, though, it'd be really, really helpful for me if you liked, commented, subscribed, or shared this with a friend, and that'd be the best way of helping get this word out. And so once again, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Now get off the computer, go enjoy your day, and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. 
The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.